While we're uh, coming to a close in our, our Christmas Isn't Cancelled series, we will wrap it up Thursday night uh, on our Christmas Eve uh, services. In our first week, we looked at uh, the light in the darkness, and we went back and we looked at Isaiah's prophecy that was some 700 years before Jesus, and we, we talked about how we needed a light from outside to come in to rescue us. Uh, next, we look at Jesus' genealogy found in, in Matthew chapter 1, and we saw that, that his family history was filled with, with some of the darkest moments in Israel's history, and that, that led us still to Jesus' birth. Last week, we continued in, in Matthew chapter 1, and we looked at three implications of Jesus being called Emmanuel, which means God with us. We looked at how it means that, that Jesus is fully God, and we talked about how it means that, that Jesus is fully human, and we talked about how Jesus is with us. Uh, yesterday in our house, we were doing a little bit of Christmas baking, and we had Rend Collectives, a very Irish Christmas uh, CD on in the background, or it was on Spotify actually, but playing in the background, and, and in that one of their songs, they talked about Emmanuel, God with us, you are one of us, which just hopefully helps us kind of uh, grasp that idea a little bit better. Now, if I can just take a minute, let me just say, uh, I, I needed last week's message this past week. Uh, most often before I, I get in front of you or get in front of a camera, I try to make sure that I've, that I've kind of preached the message to myself, that I've asked God what he wants to say from the text to me first, and then let me work through it and try to apply those principles and truths to my own life, uh, things that I need to remind myself of before I try and teach and share with you each week. And of course, I do this because I haven't arrived. Uh, I'm still a work in progress, and God's not done with me yet, and I'm thankful for that. I'm still on a journey towards being more and more like Jesus. But also I do this because if I don't, if I don't try to apply it to myself first, then what begins to happen up here is it's just an educational lecture. Here are the facts about the, the text. And instead of, uh, instead of being what I want to, it turns into a lecture instead of what I hope every week would be life-changing content coming out of the Word and the Holy Spirit speaking it to us and, and us having an, an encounter with Jesus week after week after week. Well, as I mentioned this past week, I needed to sort of re-preach last week's message to myself. There was a time when I was, I was walking this week with my kids, one hand in hand, and we were on the sidewalk, and, and someone was coming towards us, and they, they gave us the mandated six feet to pass by, and, and something in my soul just broke. The weight of, of nine months of COVID finally hit, and I wanted to scream out as we walked past, we are not lepers. You don't need to avoid us. And the more I, I think about that statement running through my head, of course, the implications are grand. Who are those people that, that maybe I avoid or that we avoid, that, that we need to uh, treat better regularly? And as I walked home, frankly, my, my eyes were watering with emotion, uh, trying to, to, to break through and run down my frosty cheeks. I, I texted my wife and said, this just happened. I, I, I don't know what's, what's going on. This is a conversation that's in my head. Uh, I made a coffee and jumped in the car to drive down to the office. And I took the long way out through Three Sisters and, and down and listened to a friend preach on hope. In this short section of that message, he pointed us listeners to Psalm 42. And twice in Psalm 42, the writer there asks, Why, my soul, are you so dejected? 
Some other translations say, why are you so downcast, O my soul? Why are you so discouraged? It was a great reminder of a psalm that I just read a few days earlier, and, and that was the feeling. Deep in my soul, dejection, discouragement, being downcast. Just, again, the weight of all this distancing from people all of a sudden burst through in a moment. If you're familiar with that psalm, with Psalm 42, do you remember what the writers say shortly after asking that question, saying, why, my soul, why do I feel in the depths of me just so, so broken, so discouraged? How, how do the writers respond to that discouragement? Let me read it for you from the Living Translation, the New Living Translation. They say, why am I so discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? But I will put my hope in God. I will, I will praise him again, my Savior and my God. Now we have to say this, that, that biblical hope isn't just, gee, I sure hope my team scores in the last couple minutes to win the game. Biblical hope isn't, boy, I hope she likes me, or I hope he likes me, or I hope I get this assignment, all this stuff prepped for when we celebrate this thing or whatever. Biblical hope isn't uncertain Biblical hope isn't anxiously waiting for a, a hoped, desired outcome. But biblical hope in the person and work of Jesus, God with us, is about certainty. Biblical hope isn't a desire for something good to happen and, and kind of hoping that it just might, but it's a confident expectation that something good will happen because of who God is. So what did I need this past week? Maybe you're in the same place. I suspect I'm not the only one that's feeling this. I needed again to make the choice to look forward to the good that will come in this life and the next based on the person and work of Jesus Christ, whose coming we celebrate, and, and, and based on who God is. Honestly, I'm not all the way through that. Uh, but even when my heart and soul are discouraged, dejected, and downcast, I want to say, and sometimes it's saying to remind myself, but I will say, I will put my hope in God. I will praise him again, my Savior and my God. I don't know if you need permission to cry out, uh, why, my soul, are you so downcast? But if you need it, and if it, you need it to come from me, you can have it. It's yours. The psalmist does it so we can do it too. This week, I want us to, to look at the hope and the faith that we find in two most important characters in the Christmas story, Joseph and Mary, Jesus' parents. We'll start with Joseph. So let me read a little bit from Matthew chapter 1 for us. These were the verses that we were in last week as well. So Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, engaged to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
And when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Sometimes we look back at people of years gone by and assume that just somehow we're smarter than they are and that they were just generally foolish. But put yourself in Joseph's shoes here at this moment. His bride, his soon-to-be bride, is found to be with child. Now, in Joseph's mind, there's only one way for Mary to get pregnant, and he's pretty confident that he was not involved. Imagine the devastation in his heart. Imagine the emotions going through his mind. And yet I, I think it's remarkable, and obviously Matthew thought it was remarkable too, that, that rather than make a, a big scene out of all this and bring all kinds of shame to Mary, which was a huge deal in the culture that day, he decides to try and, and, and divorce her quietly to, to salvage her reputation a little bit and presumably his reputation too by being quiet about the whole thing. But then he gets a visit from an angel and everything changes. His, his plans for divorce, no more. His, his relationship with Mary, well, that continued. And this child, he would raise as his own. I wonder how he, how he dealt with that through the, the course of fatherhood. I wonder how many times he had questions and doubts and, and wrestled with all of this. Now, the implications for, for Joseph here, and of course Mary, would have been huge. People in their day, of course, could also do the math, and they would realize that this boy was born too early to be, uh, too early in their married lives together. And so forever, for the rest of their lives, there would be some questions. Sure, Joseph, an angel came. Sure, Joseph, the Holy Spirit did this. Their reputations would have been in tatters. You think, you think Canmore is a small town where, where rumors and people talk all over the place? They were in a really small town. And very likely they would have been outcasts because of this pregnancy and this child. Again, it's amazing the way God decided to enter our world, isn't it? But Joseph was obedient. He took his wife and he raised God's son. And so one of the things that we can learn from Joseph's faith that we see here is that Christianity takes courage. Obedience takes courage. For Joseph to follow God, to, to follow the instructions of the angel here, he would have no doubt been looked, on, looked down on by many, if not everyone around him. And we can, we can surmise from reading the Gospels and from tradition that, that Joseph actually died before Jesus stepped into public ministry. So Joseph would have died before he had the chance to rightly say to people, I told you this was God's son. See, Christianity takes courage. It takes courage to, to face the derision or, or face the criticism from the world. Today, even though it doesn't often make the news, Christians around the world are abused and murdered for their faith every single day. Here at home in, in Canmore, in Canada, Christianity's views on things like purity and, and sex and marriage are viewed as archaic, uh, prudish, and unenlightened at best, and bigoted and phobic at worst. Yet we as God's followers, as Jesus' followers, are called to a standard set out by God thousands of years ago. 
one that's designed for our flourishing, and it takes courage. Joseph also shows us that Christianity takes courage because it, it calls us to, to give up our right to self-determination. Uh, I'm in the early pages of a book by Carl uh, Truman called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, which is absolutely fascinating. In the book, he explores our culture's push to, to defining itself. He talks about how we've pushed away from community and into isolation as we pursue our own sense of self and, and happiness that follows that. And I, I can't wait to keep plugging through these pages. But Christianity isn't about finding your best self now. Jesus calls his followers to take up their crosses and follow him. We see this in Joseph. He didn't expect to have Jesus. He would have expected to name his firstborn son, but the angel says, no, no, here's the plan for your life. Now, to be absolutely sure, Jesus wants the best for us, and he will lead us towards our own flourishing, but that doesn't mean he'll take us the way that you and I think we're supposed to go. Again, our, our culture's highest ideal is to be true to yourself. The problem with that is ourselves change over time. Feelings are fleeting, and often our feelings can even wind up in conflict with one another. Our culture tells us to pursue our own satisfaction no matter the cost. Give everything you can to make yourself as happy as you can. It doesn't matter who you step on, who you hurt, it's all about you. But even our deepest desires and our deepest dreams morph over time. I know that mine have over my life. The way of Jesus is therefore shocking to the world around us because it says, give up your rights. But if Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, God as one of us, if Jesus is mighty counselor, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace, then it's Jesus that knows what's best for my life, not me. If, if Jesus is all of these things, then it should be him at the center of my life, not my own self-determination. Joseph's life excuse me, changed forever because of his decision to stay with Mary and be Jesus' stepdad. So as Jesus follows, our lives change as well. The last thing I think Jesus, uh, Joseph shows us is that Christianity takes courage to admit you're a sinner. Look at verse 22. We see Jesus' primary mission get told here. Jesus will come and he will save his people from their sins. Maybe especially today in our selfie-centered social media world, it takes courage to admit you need help. Tim Keller helpfully writes, Are you willing to say that I am a moral failure? I, I don't love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I, I don't love my neighbor as myself, and therefore I am guilty, and I need forgiveness, and I need pardon before I need anything else. See, that, that takes courage because it means throwing out our own self-image. It means setting aside the idea that we do actually have it all together. But again, remember that genealogy that Matthew gave us in chapter 1. Nobody on that list was put together. Not a single one of them. They all needed the Savior that was coming. They all had brokenness and hurt and pain and sin in their lives. And so do we. But the good news of the gospel, the gospel is that Jesus came so that we could have that courage. 
Jesus himself came with the courage to live a life that put himself outside of the social norms of his days and resulted in his humiliating and excruciating death on our behalf. Jesus faced all of that for you and for me. So we can trust him. We should turn to him and we too can face the world with courage. Now we would be remiss if we didn't also talk about the faith and the hope of Jesus' mom, Mary. And for this, we want to flip ahead to Luke's gospel. So let me read a bit from Luke chapter 1. I'm going to start at verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel of Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and is in the sixth month with her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. If, if you've been to a church around Christmas time, you're probably familiar with these verses. And even if you haven't, you may recognize some of those from, from various Christmas carols as well. In a minute, we're going to jump down a little bit farther and see an interaction between Mary and Elizabeth that the angel has talked about here. But we want to look at Mary's faith, Mary's hope in Christmas, because it can be incredibly instructive to us. And I'd suggest that Mary here can be an encouragement to those of us who who wrestle with questions and doubts. So let's look at this section here and a little bit more farther down as well and see how Mary responds to all of this. The first thing she does is she responds thoughtfully. As I mentioned before, modern people often look down on generations past as being uncultured, uneducated, unthinking. Skeptics today often view religious people as those who are illogical, not rational, and also not thinking But even though Mary was poor and young and likely not all that well-educated by our modern standards, she responds thoughtfully here. She doesn't just accept everything that's being said and get on with her life. But look at the text, verse 29. Mary tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Another translation says she, she wondered what sort of greeting this might be. Now, the the original language here is is much stronger than either of those words. It's stronger than discern. It's it's stronger than wondered. It's more like she took an audit of the situation. Now, 
I know it's the end of a tax year, and so maybe taxes are in the back of some of our minds. And, and I know that, that we've never been fully audited as a family, but there have been times where the good folks at the CRA have sent us a letter and say, let's just see that these numbers you submitted to us are correct. And even though we, we had all the papers to, to prove that, yes, these numbers were correct, it, it, was, uh, you know, it was a detailed, thought-provoking time. Okay, we need this section here, we need this stuff here, we need this. Shove it all into a big envelope and send it off. It was stressful. It was filled with double-checking and hoping that, that we'd done enough. So this, this wondering, this discerning that Mary's doing, this isn't some sort of a, a haphazard, well, that's weird. This is weird to have you here, but okay, let's carry on. What she's doing here, it's a, it's a serious, head-spinning desire to be de- deeply rational and try to come to terms with all that's happening. No doubt her head's spinning when she hears the words of Mary, um, the words of Gabriel here. Verse 29 also says, but, but Mary was greatly troubled at what was said. This situation isn't making sense to her. Angels don't just pop down and talk to you every other day. So she's got to be thinking, what, what's going on? Did I have some bad pizza last, last night? Am I hallucinating? Why is this person here? Who is this? Why are they speaking to me? A little bit later, verse 34, she says, how will this be? I think sometimes when we picture Mary and we picture the Christmas story in our minds, maybe we, we skip this verse and we just assume, we go down to the bottom where Mary says, okay, let it happen. But she doesn't. She asks questions. She's no doubt reeling. This isn't the way it's supposed to go. What's Joseph going to think? What can you possibly mean that I'm pregnant? I know how that works, but what's my future going to look like as a teenage, potentially single mom? See, Mary didn't just accept what was told to her. She, she doubted, she asked some questions, she tried to use her reason, and then she asked more questions. She responded thoughtfully. The second thing we see from her is that she also responded gradually. And I think this is really important to us. Some people can, can look at their journey of faith, they're, they're coming to be a follower of Jesus, and they can pinpoint a specific date and time uh, right where Jesus faith, uh, their faith in Jesus took hold of their lives and, and everything has been different ever since. For others of it, us, it can be a lot more kind of foggy. I know that, that I can look back and I can see moments and, and key times in my life where the building blocks of faith were starting to stack and build, but, but not necessarily one specific aha moment. John Bunyan, who eventually wrote the, the tremendously influential Pilgrim, Pilgrim's Progress, it said he spent about a year and a half wrestling through agony and depression before ultimately coming to faith in Jesus. On the flip side, in our Bibles, in Acts 16, we read about the Philippian jailer who, is, who, who has a moment's encounter with Paul, and instantly he's convinced. Now, I suspect that for most of us, our journey towards faith is just that. It's a journey. It's not an instant. And maybe you're in the middle of that journey right now, not totally even sure about Jesus or faith, but, but you're here at least. Hopefully, you can see yourself in, in Mary and her questioning and, and her gradual response. I read a story this week of a guy who was a, a young adult who was, who was not totally sure if he believed in Jesus or Christianity, but he just kept asking questions, just kept using his mind. I, I think he was studying philosophy in, in university at the time. I could be wrong about that. 
But he said, listen, as I kept asking questions, as I kept investigating even some of the most outrageous claims made by Christianity, slowly I was convinced. And as I investigated the the other outrageous claims made by other worldviews, it seemed that they were even more outrageous than those of Christianity, and they wouldn't stand up to the same scrutiny as Christianity did. So maybe we see ourselves and and our response to Jesus uh, in Mary's response. And look at how she does this. First, she she does respond in a, a measured way, even though she doesn't totally understand. She says, how can this be? She might as well be saying, that's crazy and this makes no sense. What are you talking about? Can anyone pinpoint a moment of, like this in their own journey towards Christianity? What you're saying is crazy and doesn't make sense. But as she lets this kind of rattle through her mind and processes it even a little bit, she starts to move towards a simple acceptance. Verse 38. I, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be according to your word. Now, growing up Jewish, Mary would have had a, a relationship of some sort with Yahweh, with the God of Israel. She would have known the stories of God's faithfulness in their history. So it's not like all of this is going on in a vacuum for her. She has some context of Jewish history and the Jewish promises and the anticipation of a Messiah coming. We'll see that, of course, it it all overwhelms her, but she is, at this point, probably clinging to the truths that she knows to be true of God, even though she doesn't fully grasp everything that's going on just yet. Maybe her mind, in the midst of this, flies back to Psalm 145. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all that he has made. Maybe her mind flies back to what we call Exodus 34, 6, and 7. This is the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible. And maybe in this moment she thinks, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, but abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but by who by no means will clear the guilty. Maybe she, she's clinging to some of these promises she's heard her entire life. I, either way, she doesn't totally understand, and we'll see that in just a minute, but she shows her faith in God and trusts that he knows what he's doing. I think many of us get stuck here. We're unwilling to take even the smallest step of faith until we have every answer to every question. But the reality is, no matter your religion, no matter your worldview, you will never have every single answer to every single question. It's just not going to happen. And so in order to test any belief system, you need to start moving in the direction of faith, of belief. And Mary does that here. I don't get it, but I'll trust what I know. And so she starts to exercise her faith. Look down at verse 39. In those days, Luke writes for us, Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country, to the town of Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. This is the Elizabeth that the angel talked about in those earlier verses. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? 
For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. The pieces are coming together here. Mary's visiting her relative here, and Elizabeth, filled by the Holy Spirit, makes this this beautiful proclamation that we've just read over Mary. And look how Mary responds in verse 46. My soul magnifies the Lord. My, My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She bursts into praise as the pieces start to fit together a little bit more. We could keep reading verses 50 to 55, and she starts to connect her visit from Gabriel to this moment with uh, Elizabeth with the promises of the Old Testament and all the history of the Jewish people. Keller says, now she's submitting her will joyfully. In the end, he says, faith always moves beyond, beyond mental assent and duty and will, and it always moves towards involving the whole self, mind, will, and emotions. Mary's letting herself go here, letting herself believe. She's, she's moved beyond that trust. Okay, God, I, okay, what you say. She's like, okay, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in my God. She's responding with wonder here. When she says the, these two phrases, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, she's not saying, okay, this part of me is rejoicing, this part of me is magnifying. This is the same thing. She's speaking from her innermost being here. The repetition is emphasis. She's, she's connecting the dots. She's swept up in the emotion and the amazement of everything that's going on. Again, Tim Keller helpfully says, Mary has, is looking down the corridors of time with this song, remembering the ancient prophecies, the ancient promises to Abraham, and all the times God delivered his people in the past, and all his mighty deeds. And in the midst of this, he's talking about verses 50 to 55 here. Mary realizes that God has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. The mighty one has done great things for me. God has spent centuries preparing for this day, and now he's going to save the world through a simple, poor, teenage, still unwed girl. For me, Mary says. There's a note of joy and astonishment that God is is blessing and honoring her here. One of the things that, that I pray for all of us, for anyone who hears this piece of the Christmas story this season, is that we would regain a similar sense of wonder. That we would be amazed that the creator of the universe would set aside all of his heavenly glory and come and be born as a gift for us. To rescue and redeem us from our mess. He came for me. In the Christmas carol, O little town of Bethlehem, we sing, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. See, there's a sense in which every one of us is like Mary. When we, when we put our faith in Jesus, we receive through the Holy Spirit, as Paul writes in Colossians 1, Christ in you, the hope of glory. With all of our flaws, In all of our smallness, in the midst of our brokenness, God has given us such a mighty gift. And I pray that this would constantly drive us to wonder, that that all that God has done would lead us to worship. I pray that we can learn from the faith of Joseph, 
the faith of Mary, and that we would realize that, that Christianity is not done, something that's done by us. It's not something we have earned, but rather it's something done for us. Jesus has come. Emmanuel, God with us. Christmas isn't canceled. Let me pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, just the, the unity from Genesis to Revelation that tells the same story, that your, your love story for us, of all the things that, that you've done to draw us to you. I thank you for the example of Joseph and the example of Mary that we looked at this morning. I pray that you would help us to, uh, to be rooted in your word, rooted in your truth, and, and, and stand in faith with courage like Joseph does. Jesus, I, I ask that you would give each one of us courage this Christmas season. I thank you for Mary. I thank you for her faith as well. I thank you for her hope as well. Thank you that we can learn uh, to, to respond to you thoughtfully, that, that you don't ask us to set aside our brains and just follow you, but that we can intellectually ask questions and, and, and reason through our doubts and come to uh, the realization that, that, that this is a, a well thought out, this is an, an intellectually strong position to hold, that of following Jesus and, and Jesus coming and being our Savior. Thank you for, for the grace that we can believe gradually. It is an, an overwhelming prospect that, that the creator of the universe was born as a little baby and lived and then died for the sins of billions of people in our place and rose from the dead and now we can be adopted and grafted into his family because of our belief in him and his righteousness given for us. Help us to respond with wonder this Christmas season. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.